Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Voices of Construction. This is Dave Finnegan from TouchPlan, and I'm also the producer of this podcast. We've been doing this for a while now. In fact, this is our 22nd episode, and I have produced every single one with Noah. We really appreciate all the support, whether you listen to this in your truck, on the job site at lunch, or wherever it may be, we're happy to have continued to keep getting the voices of our construction industry out there. But with that said, we have another episode coming to you today as Noah chats with Dr. Tony Kennison-Adams and Dan Shakespeare out of the UK, both working at Project 7 Consultants in a really amazing conversation around leadership. Leadership is an important topic these days. We are seeing a seismic change on how people lead in the construction industry, how they support their team members, how they support their colleagues, their subcontractors, and the huge benefits a company can get out of that type of leadership. The three discussed how to do this, why to do this, what's the result of doing this, but also within the challenges that we face in the industry like labor shortages. What does that mean about retaining talent, about attracting talent, and getting through some of the problems that we have in our current stages? So this is a really interesting conversation with some super intelligent people who are passionate about what they do, and that passion really comes through in the conversation. So we hope you enjoy this. We hope you've enjoyed the episodes in the past and those to come in the future. Without further ado, here's Noah, Tony, and Dan. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Tony. Hey, Dan. How are you? Thanks for jumping on. Hey, Noah. Nice to see you. Hey, Noah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm great. Thank you. Nice to see you, too. Perfect. So I know we, we got a chance to speak um, a little earlier last week. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. I think that all three of us are very passionate and, and very keyed into some of the topics I want to talk about. Um, but what I really would love to do first, uh, Mr. Mr. Shakespeare over here has been a guest on our podcast at a get, uh, before, but we will we'll allow you guys to kind of introduce yourself Tell us a little about how you got into the industry, how you got to the positions you are now. Um, and we'll kind of start with Tony. Tony, I'll let you kick it off. Okay, so thanks now. So I um, I spent 30 years in the Royal Air Force as an aerospace defense engineer, um, working through project management, um, operational commands in peace and war, um, and developing um, quality, processes and it really in the early days of operational excellence in the military then uh, 15 years ago now gosh that time went quick um, I retired from the Air Force the last 15 years I've been in operational excellence in continuous manufacturing primarily um, in the paper industry and packaging industries Uh, and that was in the States uh, for 13 years two years ago I moved back from the States back to the UK Um, And I'm now the head of uh, learning and knowledge transfer for the Project 7 consultancy. Um, And uh, my my real focus is on building high performance teams and leadership within industry to capture um, the, the, uh, the value that Lean can bring to all of the industries that we work with. Um, So that that's the that's the 42nd overview of the last 40 years. Perfect, perfect. 
and Dan, we'll we'll let all the the fans out there get another recap of your your entire. <laughs> Absolutely. So well, if if Tony took forty years to do in forty seconds to do forty years, then I've only got five seconds. So we'll uh, we'll we'll have to be really quick. No. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so thank you for inviting me onto the podcast again. No, obviously we've been in touch. <clears throat> Um, you know, throughout that throughout that time, so it's great to to be invited back onto the podcast. So thank you very much. Uh, for those for the fans out there, and for those who who maybe aren't a fan yet, uh, I'll quickly introduce myself. So I'm Dan Shakespeare. Uh, I live in the UK, so I live in um, <clears throat> in West Yorkshire with my wife, uh, my young daughter, and my dog Guinness, uh, who's peacefully lying next to me uh listening to the podcast so again he's he's this is the second time he's listened to me do a podcast so he's you know i've got at least one fan in the room um so yeah so that's a little bit about me my career then so similar to, to tony and i think we'll probably go into this in a little bit more detail in the podcast so i'm ex-military so i spent um my formative years in um in the in the army so i spent um several years um in the army building my kind of leadership development skills, my kind of um, attributes associated to or closely associated to operational excellence, similar to, to Tony, about again, about helping um, improve our processes and help um, coach and shape our teams to be able to, to, to operate to those, those processes. So I worked um, in the military for a number of years and then left the military and, and, and moved into um, uh, high volume manufacturing, so I've uh, manufactured um, gaskets and valves, um, primarily for the oil and gas industry. And then um, after that, then moved into uh, consultancy um, for a, an engineering firm. So I worked for a company called Jacobs Engineering, which again, I know is big in the States. I was really fortunate then to work on some of the biggest um, infrastructure construction projects really for all phases as well. So from kind of early optioneering design, right the way through to, um, you know, construction and, and close out as well. So I was really fortunate to work on not only lots of projects, but different phases of projects as well, which has given me a really good understanding of some of the challenges and some of the kind of tribulations in the construction industry. And, and ultimately as well, that's really where my, my passion was born as well. So kind of got a bit of a dual passion. So dual passion, one being, lean continuous improvement operational excellence but then also as well the construction industry and all all that kind of brings to it so so doing lean in construction is is really like a double passion of mine so um so yeah so that's the the longer version that's the the for the fans that's my um, <laughs> intro for, for for the fans in guinness over there perfect absolutely so, um I have, I have like so, so many things I, I kind of want to cover here, but I would love to kick it off. And, and Tony, we spoke about this last week. And one thing that really, really kind of got me thinking and some of your, your LinkedIn posts was the idea of um, operational excellence being more about people than process and how those people's motivation can inspire a, lean or operationally excellent um kind of process tell me a little about where where that comes from for you i i, I see a seismic shift in the construction and manufacturing industry where i think in the past it was really process 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 
this is what we do. Let's all kind of march in line and we're really seeing a change. So tell me a little about kind of your statement to me about people, not process, and, and we can kind of kick it off there. Yeah, sure. So that really comes from growing up in the in the Air Force. Um, so I joined early. I was 16 when I joined uh, the Royal Air Force. I was 17 when I was on my first operational tour in Belfast. Um, and really learning from day one that it's it's people that make change, it's people that build things, it's people that make projects work. You can have the greatest processes in the world, um, but if they're not engaged with, they're write-only documents and they sit on a computer or they sit in a cupboard. It's people that build houses, it's people that build cars. And how people interact with those processes to make them efficient and to make them add value. Because um, ultimately, as I say, processes don't build anything. So how do you get the best out of people? How do you become the kind of leader that inspires people? How do you become the kind of leader that has a motivate, motivated workforce that really are corporate citizens that see their part in the business as owners as much as shareholders or the guy at the top of the tree. Um, so that's really what excites me. And that's what I found all the way through my service career. Whatever the adversity that you're in, it's people that get through those difficult situations and it's people that find the innovative ways to get through them and the creative ways. Uh, and that's exactly the same in my civilian career when you've, when you've got big problems to solve. If you can really engage the folk, um, then you get great results. So let, let me give you an example. So I, I came from the Air Force, um, moved to the States. My last, my last position with the Royal Air Force was actually running a project for the Pentagon on the introduction of the C-130J and the certification program. And while I was there, um, I met my wife. So when I left the Air Force in the UK, moved straight into the States, um, and I was looking around for a defense job. And as I was now a civilian, I couldn't get into defense. I wasn't a citizen at that point. That came later. Um, and I found a job in paper manufacturing. And as the new maintenance manager, um, one of my responsibilities after um, a large outage day, so we'd be down for 24 hours, and it was my job to get the machine back up and running. I'd been on site at that point for six weeks. We started the paper machine up and there was a massive fracture on the main line that took the pulp from the pulper into the process. Um, this was a big 40 gauge pump, about a 40 gauge uh, pipe, about 18 inches diameter, spewing pulp everywhere. So clearly the production manager said, you know, shut it down um, and we need to think about what's going on here. So I pulled my team together and as I say, I was new there, been there about six weeks. And I had a, a really old hoary millwright who um, loved to cuss and chew tobacco and said, okay, so what are we gonna do here? And he said, so there's the way to get us back into production and there's the way to fix the machine. Which one do you want? So I, so I brought in the production manager and said, okay, tell us both. So in order to fix the pipe, we also had to fix a big manifold section um, and we had to manufacture that. It was going to take about two and a half days so the machine would be down. So I said, OK, Dale, 
what do you think we should do? And he said, well, um, if we put the pipe back together with some clamps, wrap it in raincoats and rope, paper likes the form itself. Um, and so we start back up, it'll leak for half an hour, but it's gonna seal itself. We can be back, back on the reel in about 40 minutes. Production manager said, I ain't gonna do that. I'm not happy with that. Um, I don't think it's gonna, going to last us through for six weeks. And I looked at Dale, he said, no, it won't last six weeks, but it'll last us a week. And in that week, we can prep the stuff that we want and we can have an organized shutdown. Um, so I said, okay, Dale, it's, I get the call whether we start this machine up or not, and I'm gonna go with it. So I'd only known Dale for about, about six weeks, as I said, but there's something about when you meet someone and you look them in the eye where you can quickly build trust when that individual shows integrity. And if you show that trust in people and allow them to be creative, um, then they have never let me down. And it was the same in this situation with Dale. So it was very quickly about how can we get back on production? I didn't have the answers in the six weeks, but I did have the authority to make the decision and overrule the production manager. Um, and so quickly I had that relationship with the team and said, okay, let's do it. So we, uh, we lashed it together, wrapped it in raincoats, wrapped it in rope, and 40 minutes later, we were back on the back on machine making quality paper. But you don't get to do that if you as the leader decide you're gonna run the show, you're gonna call the shots. You have to rely on the people that you're working with to come up with the creativity and build those relationships. And, um, and that's exactly what I've done with the team in, in just those six weeks. Um, leaders these days are not the people to be out there shouting and barking to be impressed with their own ego and having a name on the door, uh, which stays closed. The, the, the whole focus of leadership now, and particularly what the millennial folks, the Gen X and the guys coming after them and girls coming after them are looking for is to be engaged and to be valued. So we have to turn the, the pyramid upside down. Um, value your people, enable them, remove the barriers. That's the role of leadership. And that's really what gets me excited. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And I think that's that's one of the the bigger changes we're seeing with collaborative planning and construction and manufacturing. Um, we we see it every day with TouchPlan. Dan, I last time we spoke, we spoke a lot about keeping employees, keeping teams motivated, keeping teams passionate. We spoke a lot about work-life balance. I think that ties into this a lot where Tony, I, I read one of your LinkedIn posts that's, that was more about, you know, you're not hiring the wrong people, you're hiring the right people, and you're just not keeping them motivated. I think what listeners really want to hear is this is a big change. Some people might find it as a scary change. What are some of the, the actions and direct actions both of you take to really create that motivation, that passion, keep people interested, keep people employed at the company that you want them employed at, um, and, and therefore kind of have that, that ultimate goal of increasing productivity and getting that collaboration like Tony was talking about. So what are some of the, like, I don't want to say it's as easy as like a recipe or a how-to, but what are some of the actions that you guys typically see or take 
that really inspires that motivation and that that passion for what they're doing. I'll uh, I'll start on. So I think <clears throat> it's a really good question. I think I'll just draw on some recent experience actually that we did. So <clears throat> we did um, we did a, a quite an extensive um, study around about when was it now? Maybe summer last year. So maybe six six seven months ago. And it was around what are some of the product, what do the people see as some of the productivity challenges? We spoke to people from Preston in the UK to Perth in Australia. We spoke to chief executives to, you know, site supervision um, and, and ground workers. So we really did get a really good flavor, both <clears throat> across different geographies, but then also as well across the kind of command structure about where they see some of the, the some of the ch some of the challenges. Now, you know, the further up the tree that you maybe got, the, the, the challenges maybe got a little bit more strategic in their nature and further down the tree, you maybe got some of the more tactical um, uh, kind of challenges, but there was ultimately a golden thread really tying them, tying them together. Um, and crucially, one of the the, the crucially the, the the thing that was consistent across all of the um across everyone that we spoke to was how passionate people were in the construction industry and that was something that really was really evident to see how passionate people were about building things and about infrastructure being and infrastructure and construction projects being about outcomes and we spoke about this um you know, around you know building a new highway that you know that delivers a social outcome for me because I can now drive 40 miles to go and see my grandmother and I can get there 15 minutes earlier or 10 minutes earlier so I get to spend more time with her and whatever it may be or building a new shopping mall that connects two distant um, communities together and brings different um, communities and cultures together in, in one environment so you know you think a shopping mall is actually you know it's a building with some stuff in it but actually it's about the outcomes and the social outcomes that that generates and i think that's really because because construction and infrastructure is such a unique industry that's that really is what underlines the passion so to back to your your point I think when I'm in in a construction project or working on working on construction projects, whether it whether it would be defined as maybe a toxic environment, maybe you know the project is underperforming, maybe they're behind schedule or over cost, or there's been some safety issues or some cost issues, whatever it may be, the underlying um, feeling on that project is one of passion because people just want to do things. So I find construction the construction industry is its own worst critic. So Whenever you see reports out there about about project delays and poor quality and poor productivity, it's all written by the construction industry for the construction industry, and it just comes from a place because they want to get better. So I find when I'm working in these projects, it's all about channeling that passion and channeling channeling that that enthusiasm to deliver the right outcomes. So again, like like Tony said. You know, engaging with your team, you know, not becoming, not moving, not being the commander who makes all the decisions and, and you know, I own all the risk, therefore I'm going to make the decision and I'm not going to include my team. Actually, the ones who do the work, plan the work, the ones who really know and understand the process, as a leader, you'll never understand all of those processes. So you have to really engage 
your people, engage and understand what their challenges are. And that's what really, as Tony said earlier on, drives and stimulates that creativity to problem solve. And actually, by involving your people in, in maybe smaller elements, so maybe there's a small problem on site, and you bring your team together, do a small practical problem solving exercise, get to a deliver a good outcome, and then that will then snowball and generate um, more and more interest in what you're doing. So I think start small, engage your team, start small, and then build it from there. So whether you're involving them in a collaborative planning session or you're involving them in uh, a workshop or you're involving them in a practical problem solving session that actually helps them and actually helps channel that enthusiasm and channel that passion to deliver the right outcomes, I think that helps. So kind of starting small and building it from there really, really does work. And um, and yeah, I think I'm interested to hear what kind of Tony, Tony says on this as well, around particularly around um, some of the hows, but then also as well, if you move it, if you're in a toxic environment as well, or maybe I don't like necessarily using the word toxic environment, but if you're in an environment that's maybe not um, conducive to building trust, building an engagement, building creativity, how do you overcome that as well? Because I think some of the listeners would be would be interested in hearing that too. Yeah, Tony, I, I think we, we spoke about um, prior to this call, we spoke a, a, a bit about um, that that kind of shift that I'm talking about and what does that really mean in terms of the implications for a construction company, for a consulting firm? What are the positives? What are the, the things that people may struggle with? And we can kind of, what what I would love to talk about too is there's always a reason we see these changes, right? When we see collaborative environments, we see motivation, we see passion, we see better work, we see higher quality, we see a copious amounts of different things, but we also are dealing with real problems in the construction industry where someone may come up to you and say, oh, it's great, everything's hunky-dory, everyone's passionate, motivated, but I can't get enough people on my job site. I can't hire enough people. And trying to explain to them that a motivated, positive culture that has amazing work ethic and also amazing projects attracts talent and influences the industry as a whole to make young people, because we are in kind of an aging workforce, make young people want to be part of this industry and change their views about who works in it. So that was a lot, and I apologize. I probably should have segmented that a little bit there, Tony. Um, yeah. But yeah, just Which in terms of those of the- seven would you like me to start with? Yeah, right. Just, so, just go. So, just go for it. So yeah. So, so there is this big change. There's this fundamental change at the moment from the old, what was called the cops system, the traditional pyramid, and you've got the boss at the top, which is all about command and control. And why do you have to have command and control? You have command and control because you haven't got trust. If you don't you trust, if you don't trust your people, you have to control them. So where people, where the, these models have shifted is that pyramid is now turned upside down. So the point of the pyramid is now the senior guy, the director, the site leader, the planner or whatever. And his job now, instead of shouting and barking the orders down, is fundamentally different because he's now, his job is now to remove the barriers to enable the people that you have hired that you said were the right people to keep them in your business. 
So that's a huge change. And for, for some folk, it's really difficult. And it might not be that everyone survives that, that cultural and philosophical change. And you, you just have to recognize that. But if you've got those people, as you said, that are engaged, they're empowered, they will be your best recruiters. So if you can't get people into your company and the people on the ground aren't bringing them into your company, then you have a problem with your people because people who are enjoying themselves are infectious and will want to bring more people in anyway. Yeah, if, you're, if your folks are your best recruiters, then you're, you're doing well. If your folks never bring anyone into your company, then you're probably top heavy. So that's the big trans change. And it's from that idea of command and control to what in the military we call mission command or what I call when I'm teaching, it's now about climate control. It's the responsibility of leaders and leadership to control the climate in their organization. So it's a nurturing, welcoming climate where people want to stay. You, you picked up on something I wrote recently that was published um, the headline was leadership, stop motivating your people. If leaders have to motivate their people, they've do, done something wrong. You were motivated to hire them for the right reasons. They were motivated to join you for the right reasons. So what's changed? And what typically changes is that companies hire the right people, then turn them into the wrong people. So you'll see folks who stay in a company for 20, 30 years. Um, and they're just kind of ingrained in that philosophy and they're difficult to change. And then you see this really high turnover of young people coming into companies because the companies haven't adapted to meet their needs and to, to keep them excited and engaged. A part of that is, you know, then there's the, the discussion of, so how do you do that? How do you change that? So what people are looking for now in any organization, be it running a church group, laying down a new road, building an airport. What they're looking for is authentic, honest, real people. Um, and authentic leadership gets talked about a lot um, and it gets kind of messed up and muddied a lot. But at its core, it's really basic. And I'd encourage people to read books like um, uh, those from, from, uh, from George and Bennis who looked about and talk about true north and what real authentic authenticity is. So being an authentic leader has really got four core principles that you would look to in order that your people are going to relate and, and stick around. So the first one is you've got to have a strong ethical core. People no longer want to follow leaders who are not true to themselves or are not true to the values that are around. And we saw this, you know, with the, the whole crash of the economy that came out of the mortgage issues and made off and all of these leaders that just were not sincere and they dragged the businesses and the people into the ground. So leaders need a strong ethical and moral core. Leaders need to exercise something called balanced processing, which means you bring your people into the decision making process. For me as a leader, that actually makes life easier. As Dan said, you know, as, as, a, as an Air Force officer, for example, I had as um, running an electronics project, or I was the electrical engineer for, for the tornado. I had specializations in airborne early warning, electronic countermeasures, radar, weapons release systems. I would never understand all those, exactly the same as being on a job site. I don't know, I couldn't mix plaster if my life depended on it. I couldn't mix mud you know, if my life depended on it. 
you know, I, 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 I'd have 25 parts grit and two parts bananas. It wouldn't, I would not be the right person for that. So balanced processing means you bring your expertise and you have to be humble as a leader that, you know, your expertise as the leader is to remove the barriers so that the mission is successful. Um, so you go to the people who know what they're talking about, bring them into it. People love to be engaged. And if they're engaged, they feel far more satisfied in their core. They feel more part of the business that you start to work towards what we call this corporate citizenship. So bring them in, make decisions with them. Be transparent. You can share something of yourself and your own experiences, which is what they usually talk about in transparency with authentic leadership. But for me, transparency is more than that. It's, it's being able to share why you make the decisions you do. Why do you do the things you do? And I, I have, I've had occasions in paper mills where I've got that trust because I've, I've, you know, I've, I've brought my people in and I've shared decisions in the past. When there's been a crunch, I've been able to go to my team and say, hey guys, we really haven't got the time to talk about this. I can explain it later, but I need you to trust me. Can you just do this for now? And the team will say, yeah, absolutely. And they don't feel like they're being locked out. They know there's a sense of urgency, but I've built the relationships and I've brought them in when I could. So transparency is important. And the last one, and this is really for leaders to work on, is to build a self-awareness of their own skill sets. We spend lots of time talking to other people and getting to know other people, but far, few, far too few leaders spend time talking to themselves. Now, that isn't getting ready to be locked up, but talking to themselves and having a conversation with themselves about what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, who on my team complements my weaknesses, um, who can I go to and share that with and be open? Um, and leaders have to become far more self-aware and start to learn things like, uh, and this isn't, this isn't all kind of East Coast, California stuff. This is rubber hits the road stuff for me in, in my experience. Um, but you have to learn to be able to reflect on what you've done. So if you, you go home and you think that situation at work today really went poorly. You don't just have a beer and move on. You think, why did it move poorly? What was my action or inaction? Because inaction will cause as much negativity as, as bad action. What did I do or I didn't do with my people that caused that to be worse? And so leaders have to become self-reflective. And when you start to do that, you start to build what Tony Robbins calls reference experience. We used to call it gut. You know, I'm going to go with my gut. Well, going with your gut is actually having spent time reflecting on what went well, what went badly, so that when it happens a second time, you've got something to build off. Uh, and that's, that's also important that if you have a really good day, a project goes really well, you finish on time, you finished on budget, and that's not the usual thing. I know it's not when we're building aircraft. Um, think about why did that go well? How can I learn from that? How can I harness it? So strong ethical core, balanced processing, transparency, self-awareness, so that the right people that you hire stay the right people and you don't turn them into the wrong people. Um, that doesn't mean that leaders can't have a bad day, but when your people really know you and have a relationship with you, if you're having a bad day, um, they're gonna understand it. That doesn't give you an excuse to start barking orders and revert. You know, you're still responsible for climate control, not command and control.
But that's the four yeah. things that I would say that in this big change of, of especially bringing younger people in and keeping them, look at authentic leadership and spend time as a leader understanding your own leadership. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on that. I speak to a lot of construction leaders, Tony, and, and, and well, this will be this will be applicable in certainly applicable in the states. And the labour challenge is the is one of the biggest challenges construction leaders are facing at the moment. It's one of the things on top of so safety and and the and the and the physical and mental well being of of their of their teams goes without saying. But the second thing that keeps leaders awake in, in the construction industry is not being able to get the people in the door to be able to, to, to deliver the job. And, and that's causing a lot of stress on, on construction leaders. And it's in the UK, it's, it's dual fold. So we have obviously the, the challenge with Brexit and the fact that a lot of kind of European labour has maybe left the market and hasn't come back since, since COVID, but then also as well, uh, the aging workforce and the fact that you know that the point that Tony made about Gen Zero and all of those um, uh, new kind of new young people coming into the industry. So I think those four points are brilliant, Tony. You know, and actually, if if construction leaders or anyone on this call on on this podcast is listening, I think that's a really good point to take away and actually using that authentic leadership style to to bring people in. That point you raised there about balanced processing, Tony, around bringing people in. Um, you know, that's kind of to the point I made around start small. So you don't have to go from zero to hero overnight. So, you know, you're not, you're not, we wouldn't expect a, you know, an environment that maybe is never, or a team that's never experienced leadership styles like this to go from having zero input to having the input on, you know, whether we're going to, um, stop the job or whether we're going to, um, go for a totally different style of, of build, whatever it may be, you know, start, start small. We've got a little bit of a problem here, guys. Let's just get together. Let's understand what the containment measure is. Let's understand what the long-term countermeasure is. Has anyone else got any, any input, any, any feedback? Okay, great. Is everybody happy with the decision that we're going to make? Okay, good. You know, that, that small 10, 15 minute conversation will start to get the ball rolling with your teams in terms of building that, that level of, of, of decision making and, and bringing bringing them into into the fold, I think, is uh, such a big thing. It'll go to to kind of addressing that that labour challenge because it's you know it's, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing that that leaders are are facing these days. Yeah, if if you're having difficulty bringing in new folk, then your first responsibility is to look after the ones that you have. Yeah, um, and, the, and the, keep them with you. Um, and, and Tony, just I, I, the, go on. Sorry, I was going to say the you know construction job sites. You've got you know guys guys on there that you know they're in the break room. It's similar to, similar to the military. You know, it's it's they'll have a good moan when they when they want to have a good moan. But if it's a really good environment, you know they'll ring their mates. They'll ring their mates. They'll bring they'll bring people in. Although equally, if you know if some of their some of their colleagues or some of their uh, friends want to work. If it's a really toxic environment, they're going to say, "Don't, don't bother coming in." Now nah, the bottom, you know, the, the the construction manager is a is a prick or whatever. They're not gonna, they're not going to to do that. Similar to you know to the military, Tony. It's that kind of um, kind of um, <clears throat> discussions on on the kind of on the on the on the job site. So 
using those leadership styles will really start to turn that turn that culture and turn that that climate around as, as Tony mentioned earlier on. I think one of the things as well you you're saying now you know what are some practical steps in this in this whole change. Um, when I was designing my leadership model, one of the tenets of that, and I tried to keep it simple so folk can understand, there's all the classic things of being a good communicator and all that kind of thing. One of the things is that in my, in my model is every interaction is an opportunity. So every time you as a leader are out on the, on the, out on the job site, out on the shop floor, on the production line, whatever it might be, every interaction is an opportunity. Now that doesn't mean you're going to do Carter coaching at every step. You know, what's your target? What's your actual, you know, why is the machine running faster? It can be, you just had a new baby. How's the baby doing? How's that going? You've learned how to sleep all night again yet, you know, or, uh, you know, whatever that might be. But every interaction, if you go out and you see your people and all you do is smile or nod, um, you're wasting opportunities to build relationship and to understand what the issues are. Because once you've built those relationships, folks will tell you what the problems are far earlier. You know, you don't find out that a guy's got a problem the day that he hands in his pink slip and leaves the business. You know, he'll tell you what's going on. So as a simple thing, every interaction is an opportunity. And if, you, if, you, if you're out walking around, go out with an intention. You know, I, I know Wayne Dyer, really popular over in the States until, uh, you know, it's obviously recently died. But he talked about the power of intention. If you leave your office and you're walking around with the intention that you're going to speak to people and you're going to make their day better, then you're going to build those relationships and you're going to start to bring people into the fold um, as empowering, engaged corporate citizens on whatever you're doing. So go out with an intention, look for those opportunities, build the relationships, grow your people. Tony, I'm keen to, so I, I so having spent time in the military and spent you know several years working in uh, design and construction, I can really you know from being able to use both landscapes, I can really draw parallels to to, to those environments. Um, and I just wanted to the the passion bit I think is particularly keen. You know when I was when I was a soldier, I was incredibly passionate about being a soldier. I wanted to be the best soldier I could possibly be. I wanted my team to be the best team. So of all of the detachments, whenever there was a competition, like a log race or a obstacle course race, or if there was an inspection or whatever it is, I wanted my detachment to be the best team. So if there was an inspection, I wanted all of the leadership to say that dance team, that was the best inspection so there was i was really really passionate and you know i wasn't the only one i was full of within that environment i was full of people who all wanted to be really really passionate which made my job as a leader actually quite easy because again similar to how i kind of mentioned earlier on all i had to do was redirect that passion to to deliver the outcome that we wanted to deliver so it was it made it really really useful and, and construction is very very similar people are really passionate about building good projects you know People I speak to in, in the construction, one of my best mates, he works in the t works in the tunnel, so he does. He's worked on HS2, he's worked on uh, Hinkley Point C, all of the big projects and all of the big uh, projects in the UK building tunnels. And he's really passionate. Whenever I see him in a pub or whatever, I'm like, oh damn, what you know, what job shot he's been on recently, and he'll tell me about 
the the TBM machine and he'll tell me about how big the tunnel is, how you know all of the challenges he's had, yada yada yada. He'll also tell me if there's been any kind of uh, construction managers who are a bit arsy with him. So he'll tell me the good, bad, and the ugly. But he's really passionate, really really passionate, and that you know that is is quite consistent with a lot of people in the industry. So I want to get your experience, Tony, about how you can use that people who are genuinely passionate about what they do you know again your experience on how you can just channel that in the right direction to deliver the right outcomes so when you've got passionate people and you've got a shared vision use the leader remove the barriers the guys will get on and they'll be successful without you you're just there to nudge the tiller on the ship the interesting thing is the people that are not passionate how do you get them on board? So let me let me tell you a story. So um, I took over as the uh, maintenance and reliability manager for a large paper mill, um, and I was being introduced to my staff. I had there was like 35 millwrights, 15 electricians, and we had some pipe fitters and some other specialists. And I was being taken around, and just about the last guy that I I met. Um, I was introduced and they, the, the guy showed me around and said, and this is Bob. And I held up my hand and I said, hello, Bob, what do you do? And Bob looked at me, didn't shake my hand, looked up to me, looked up, looked me in the eye and said, I do all the shit jobs that nobody else wants to do. And I thought, he's the guy that I'm going to convert so that the rest of the team know that I do what I'm going to say I'm going to do. Um, a week or so later, I was standing out on a conveyor that took one pound, uh, one ton bales of recycled paper, took them up a big walking floor in a conveyor, dropped them into the pulp and drove to the start of the process. And I noticed that in between the bales, there was a, a gap of 12 to 18 inches. Now, it doesn't matter how fast you drive the conveyor. If you've got a gap of 12 or 18 inches between bales, you're not getting the maximum feed that you need. So I said, What's the problem here then, Bob? Bob was standing next to me at the convention. He said, I told them 10 years ago how to fix this problem, but they wouldn't listen to me. So, you know, being an NLP coach and knowing the importance of language, I thought, okay, them and they um, is Bob's mindset. I said, so what do you think we need to do? So he told me what, what he would do in terms of the engineering for the solution. And I said, okay. So what do you need from me in order to, to put that solution in place? So after 10 or 15 seconds where he just stood there with his mouth wide open, um, he gave me the solution. Now, people had not listened to Bob. He was a bit of an awkward character, but he knew the solution and he knew that that solution would improve business. So I said, okay, Bob, and he, he'd drawn up the solution 10 years previously. I said, what do you need from me? He said, well, first, if you think it's the right solution, I need you to find $28,000 out of your budget so I can do the engineering to fix this. I said, okay, I'll find the $28,000 in my budget. How are we gonna do it without taking the paper machine offline? He said, well, we can do this in three pieces of work on normal outage days. I can do the engineering, I'll lead it all for you. And when we start up after the third, out third outage days, um, there will be no gap and you're going to get an immediate ROI. So I said, okay, Bob, have you ever been a project manager? 
And he said, he said, no, I haven't got the clue. I said, well, I'll sit next to you in the meetings with the engineers and with the production manager. We'll go through the process. This is your project and I want you to be successful. So I was removing barriers. And as I say, Bob was not the most magnanimous guy, most the easiest guy to get on with. Um, he had a heart of gold, but he'd been put down for 10 years and not listened to. So I got the $28,000 out of my budget. We did the engineering. It took three different outages. So that was over an 18 week period when we started it back up for the first time in 10 years. There were no gaps in the feed um, production. The next day had their best production run they'd had on that machine since startup, which had been 12 or 13 years earlier. Production was happy. I was happy. Um, the, I think we got the ROI back in a number of weeks. But the important thing was Bob came into my office a couple of days later with a big smile on his face. And he just said, boss, I just wanted to know I've had the best day ever. I'm going home now. Great day. Thank you very much. So I turned him from the miserable git in the corner who did all the shit jobs to probably the biggest advocate I had for how I wanted to work. And it was a case of, you know, Tony will put up um, and make sure that we can be successful. So if you, if you treat each of your individuals as the person they want to be, the person that they can be with their creativity and their innovation, irrespective of their foibles, and you remove the barriers, then you have advocates and advocates work harder, bring new people in um, and improve the business. And it ended up that machine had its best production year since startup. But it was, I, I, long, story, long story short, you've got to meet your people where they are. Yeah, Tony, I, I think I, I heard a lot in that and I, I think it reflects also on Dan's point of how the construction industry and manufacturing industries will label themselves. We, we all hear a lot of, well, that's just the way it is. A lot of kind of defeated um, analogies of what, what they have the ability to change, right? And that's where that comes from. Well, that's just how construction is. That's just the way it goes. There's delays. You know, you just listen and you do this or you waste material. That's just the way it is. Or, you know, I have to work 80 hour weeks. I work in construction. That's the way it is. And to your point, I think a lot of it comes from that form of leadership where if you can't contribute, you can't have a say and you can't hold yourself to an accountability, it is kind of just the way it is because you don't have any singular effect on what could happen. Also to that point, I believe that's part of the reason the younger generation in the way we think, the way we work and the professional lives that, that people want out there kind of shy away from the construction industry. So I think all of these things are tied together in a sense where if you have good leadership with and turn that the pyramid upside down, you then for then have a, a better outlook of your employees, of course, better projects, better success rates, so on and so forth. But also it it changes the dialogue about the well that's just the way it is because ultimately i would love to hear if you guys agree or not 
that kind of defeated way of speaking about things, right? Oh, well, I can't do anything about it. I'll just do what I got to do and get out of there, right? How many times do we hear subbies or trades? Well, that's not my problem. I can't, I can't do anything yeah. about it. I got nothing not my, to say about that. Not my right? job, yeah. Yeah, so with that, yeah. once they do have a say, it changes that dialogue. It changes the way we're seen as an industry and therefore solves other problems. And more than any time kind of in recent history that the conversation we're having right now is so important because Tony, to your point, not only is there kind of this labor shortage, that means it's harder to get people to come. It's harder to supply the resources you need for a job, but also the ones you have can go get a job wherever they want because they're available. Right? So yeah. I would, I would love to hear kind of how I've tied them all together. Do you guys agree with that? I, I think there's something to be said about all of these really kind of working together to solve uh, an overarching, more holistic kind of problem in the industry. I think two, two quick points. One is that people will leave if they're unhappy to go and work for someone else for exactly the same money. That speaks volumes. If they're doing that, you've got a problem. And the other, the other thing is when people say, well, that's just the way it is, you have to reframe that and ask why. And it is always because leadership have made it the way that it is. If, if things are bad, it's not the guys at the bottom that can change culture. If you look at organizational culture, um, Edgar Schein in his book, Organizational Culture and Leadership, talks about leadership and organizational culture being two sides of the same coin. If you don't like your organizational culture, look to leadership. If you don't like your leadership, look to your organizational culture. So if everyone is saying, you know, this is crap and that's just the way it is, leadership has, they're the only ones that have the ability to change that culture. And so leadership have to grip it. Um, and you have to make sure you've got the right people in place that can do it. Um, so it's, I know it, it sometimes sounds like a cop out, but yes, it's always up to leadership. If your guys aren't happy, it's up to leadership. In the military, you know, we would, when you go out and you're on exercise and you're in the mud and bullets, you know, you feed your guys first and when they're comfortable, you look after yourself, you look after your people. If your people are unhappy um, because they haven't got any food, why haven't they got any food? Because leadership didn't organize it. And the same lessons from the, from the military, and the military does hard stuff but you won't find groups of more motivated people. Um, nobody is shooting at you on the building site. Nobody's blowing you up. There isn't an expectation that you and your mate are gonna go home in a body bag. So there's no need for it to be that hard. And leadership, yes, the work is difficult, but the culture doesn't have to be hard and aggressive and as Dan was saying, toxic, so that people don't want to engage with it. So if that's the way it is and people don't like it, then leadership shape up change the way it is yeah i think <clears throat> i think construction projects as well like you know the the project can be an almost you know, a microcosm of its own in its own culture you know, from one project to a different project um and have different cultures even you know within a within one big project you might have one general contractor one tier one contractor who's you know their culture is really really embracing really uh, transformative they're really um turning the dial in terms of 
you know, this isn't this isn't the way it should be and we're doing actively doing things about it. But then you can equally equally go to on the same job site to a different contractor and they have the same the, the, the results are the same, but their outlook is totally different about how they're actually addressing it. So it's all, you know, barking down poor you know, it's poor performance, what are you gonna do about it? Get better, get better, get better. You know, so it's really it can be a, a kind of microcosm of its own own culture. So again, as as Tony said, leadership are the ones that can that can transform that, and that's really where you you get better. I was on a <clears throat> I was on a construction site on Friday for a um, a highways job not far not far from my house. I was speaking to one of the project managers, and he was talking to me about how uh, there's some challenges in, on the project, and they want to do the right thing and want to kind of transform their leadership model and and, and stuff like that. And he said, "Can you just describe to me?" And what operational excellence? What is what is lean? What what will it do for me? And I just ultimately just said, I said it's a people-based thinking way that transforms operational performance. And it's ultimately about getting everyone in the organisation or everyone in the project, everywhere, and every single day, engaged in change. That's 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 really really well it's about. So everyone, everywhere, every day, engaged in change. And it was really like really quite taken aback I think certainly within our um kind of um our world you know the whole lean operational excellence piece can get a little bit muddied and I think that's why it's really good to kind of break down those those barriers and break down those stigmas to see what it can what it can deliver and how it can ultimately change some of the some of the cultures and some of the the project performance that we kind of talked about as well I, I would like to kind of hit on a point too, where we run into this with construction technology. Um, we provide kind of an, an, an enablement platform. What I see a lot of the time is we're, we're talking about a workforce that maybe Tony, um, these, these guys and girls have been working for 20 years in a command and control environment. When we approach them with a upside down pyramid I think there's a huge amount of fear um, that their professional equity, right? What they're worth is the knowledge inside their head, how they can run a project all on their own, all of these different things. So in some sense, you're coming to them with a, a, a process that can improve their life, their day, but there's still this deep seated fear that like, well, what am I worth? now right what i've been doing this right for so long i have all the knowledge in my head how does this change my life does this make my professional equity decrease and i think that is probably the sole thing that inhibits touch plan from creating change right with a project manager or a project executive is that okay if i make this change what do i have power over why am i important anymore and i think there are ways to diminish that fear, but in your experience, like Dan, if you had gone to talk to that gent right near your house and he was like, oh, so all of them get to say exactly what we're doing and I, and I don't have power over them anymore. Kind of what what is the answer there? Because ultimately it gets down to these people on the ground that have a fear of change ultimately because that change will their implication of it is that it makes them worthless as a professional and therefore their salary will go down, they may get fired, they, it affects their family, all of those things come into play. So how do we mitigate that fear to really kind of talk on the same page? 
Yeah, no, I, I totally, I totally agree there, no, and I think <clears throat> so. In my experience, leaders get to the position they're at because they're often very good at solving problems. So when they were a, you know, a shop floor, let's just say on the job site when they worked on, on, on the, you know, the laying concrete, whatever they were doing, you know, at that level they were really good at solving problems. So when there was a problem, they went to that person and that problem was solved, and then slowly they then progressed through the ranks because they were good at solving problems so someone would come to them with a problem and that person would solve that problem and continually that kept happening over the years and reinforced and almost provided the um <clears throat> the kind of the opinion to that individual that i'm the only person that can solve problems and i've got to i've got to construction manager i've got to regional vp i've got to the head of this business because I'm good at solving problems. So then when you come to that person and say, okay, well, what I want you to do is everyone underneath you, underneath your span of control, I want you, I want you to engage them in solving the problems. So I want you to move from a position where you fix problems to where you coach problems. And that's that fundamental shift. So we talk about leaders should coach, not fix. And it's a it's a really big challenge when it comes to that. So, you know, some of the some of the bits that we talked about earlier on around how you want to you know engage small and that also happens from a leadership element as well so you know rather than that leader going starting um you know he he knows how to plan a job he knows how to run a job and it's all in his head so why does he need a tool like touchpan for example when he could just put all the information on excel spreadsheets and then send that out to send it out to his team like why you know why do, would he need anything why would you need to do anything different? So it's about starting small for that leader as well and start to move to a position where they, they can do that. So whether you would involve, you know, have a small one hour planning session where you'd maybe go through the planning a little bit more detail and then let the team's input into that and then slowly start to build that and change that fear. But ultimately it's around um, them, them wanting to want to engage, I think is a big one, one of the biggest, um, things I've used in, in my past is if you can't change the people, then unfortunately you've got to change the people. So um, there's a there's a tough one and I'd, I'd be keen to get Tony's opinion on this one as well, because that, that is a, a big, big challenge. Yeah, I, I um, live, having lived in the States for a long time, there was an expression I heard a lot was, you can't change the people, change the people. And it's, a, uh, it's an expression I really grew to dislike. Um, because you can't you can't look on your people just as a resource and if the resource doesn't fit you know there are some times where you can coach and mentor and do everything you can and people can't change and you might have to find another place for them um and that place might be out of out of the business you know which is sad but i in my in my 40-year career um i've had to do that twice where i've not been able to coach people through um to understand why we want to invert that pyramid. You have to understand sometimes why people want to be like that. You know, it's, it's all about reframing. If a guy wants to keep everything to himself, why does he want to do that? Well, it's, it's not necessarily that he wants to be feel important, but he might be insecure about everything else uh, in his life as well. And you take away that, and there's nothing left. So it's again, it's about understanding people and meeting people where they are. Change is, is always hard. At a minimum, there's an anxiety about leaving the familiar and moving into a new environment where it, which is the unknown. 
So at a minimum for change for everyone, there's those two elements of anxiety. And if you look into things like evolutionary psychology, that goes way back into our DNA from, from when we were just learning to be hunter gatherers. You know, you can, I won't take up hours on that, but it, it's, it's really interesting. You know, people didn't want to move around because they didn't know if around the next corner, a saber toothed tiger was going to rip their head off. You know, people didn't want to do something different like climbing a cliff because if they fell off the cliff, they would break their leg and everyone who broke their leg bled and then they died. You know, so there's, there's something deep within us about change. And there's lots of reading you can do about, about that. And I even wrote a piece about um, there's no need to stay a caveman, you know, but the reality is there is this anxiety. So change is, is always tough. So understand why find people find the change. If it's just down to ego, they're the most difficult people that you're going to have to turn around. People who have insecurities, you can coach them through it. If it's just ego, the way that I've appealed to people in that regard in the past is, well, what's the best thing for the business? So you might be the best job planner on the planet, and you've done a fantastic job for the last 15 years. But if you get run over by a bus tomorrow, my business goes down the swanee because you're taking all the intellectual pro property with you into a six foot hole. So it's important for the business that the business owns the intellectual property, not the individual. So you have to capture that knowledge. And I, I had a lot of that working in paper mills where the apprentices that had come through from the 70s were all aging out. They were all my age. They were in their 60s and they were retiring. And all of the experience was gone. So I spent three years with the guys and starting with the oldest ones, taking everything they knew and putting into good preventative maintenance. And within Lean, we'd look to take that knowledge and then capture that so that we had good pieces of work for, you know, things like, I know in construction, you talk about last planner or short end of control, process confirmation. So you have to get that knowledge out. People who are really committed to the business and doing a good job, when you turn around to them and say, we want this business to be successful, even when you've left, well, then some turn on and say, okay, find me someone I can dump all this knowledge into. So what's the right thing for the business? What's the right thing for the individual? Um, and then that way, try and coach them through it, make them open to change. And as I say, I've, I've had some pretty awkward, obstreperous, 35-year experience, mill rights. Um, <clears throat> one guy I wanted, I, I spoke to him. This is, this is key to understanding, meet the needs of the individual. This one guy, incredibly experienced, could fix anything. And I said to him, could you write down just simple bullet points of how you do that job so I can put it onto preventative maintenance? He said, oh yeah, I'll do that for you. I'll do that for you. A couple of weeks later, I said, um, Hey, Tim, have you written that job down? No, I haven't quite done it yet. Um, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And I spoke to, to one of the supervisors and said, you know, I've asked him to do that twice. Should, is there a different way that I should ask him? Because it's not Tim's problem if he hasn't written it down. It's my problem because I need the information. And he said, the guy said to me, Tim doesn't know how to read or write. So you have to meet the need and know your people. So I got a guy to sit with Tim and Tim said everything that he did and they went out and they took photographs and ended up with brilliant PMs. So 
if there's someone who isn't clicking, who isn't right, understand why um, and meet the person at their point of need. Tim wasn't being awkward. Um, you know, normally I didn't have to ask anything twice, but I had to find out the why. So find out the why behind it. You've then got the data. That data is then transferable, and that's the right thing for the business, not just the individual. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think even in a even in a silo, when we talk about construction technology, I th think we can relate to your main points of adoption, where we we find that ego is the hardest, right? I'm not changing. I'm an old school guy. Just you know, kick rocks, right? That's the hardest thing to change. But sometimes it's as easy as, you know, uh, someone may not type that well, right? And they type with two fingers and they don't want to stand up in front of the entire crowd and look like they are using a typewriter. So I, I really agree with that when it comes to every aspect of a construction project, adopting construction technology to, to retaining knowledge and transferring knowledge. Um, I know we're kind of coming up on our time here and I, I don't want to take too much more time, but I would love to hear, we talk about all this change. We, we talk about some of the, the different things you guys do to implement this change. We talk about leadership. What's the success of this? What does this look like in five years? How does this make our industry better? How does it make our individuals more profitable, happier and what 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 do you see really kind of the implications of this positive change in, in five years? Well, I, I'll, I'll hand over to Dan because he's got some good stats on this. But I, Dan showed me a graph of what's happened in in manufacturing and production by adopting these these kind of ways of working over the last 10 or 20 years. And it's about was it a 20 percent increase in productivity, Dan? Yeah, that's right. So I think this is a really fabled. Um, Kind of graphic that's shown so it, it stems from the mckinsey productivity imperative uh, that was done in, in in 2017 which highlighted effectively the gross value add of the construction industry to um to compared to that of other industries including farming agriculture manufacturing and it showed that since kind of that, the 70s productivity has increased by kind of 1.5 to one percent annually since the 70s whereas since um in the same time you know manufacturing has increased you know two or three fold in terms of its, its gross domestic value add so there's so the, the data there suggests that there's a big productivity challenge now um there's a really famous uh, economist that once said productivity isn't everything but in the end it's everything so and, and and what what that really means is, you know, short term productivity challenges won't impact won't necessarily impact the business, but productivity is directly linked back to, to profitability. And that comes back to all of the points we've raised about having engaged um corporate citizens who want to really buy into and help deliver the change for, for organizations and for, for projects. It's about having the right processes in place that you can actually implement and sustain change. It's about using the, the intellectual property of all of, all of the individuals that have been working on construction projects for years and years and years, are hugely passionate about getting out of there, getting all of that information out of, out of their brains and getting it into robust processes 
so we can then start to deliver better performance. And, and since the productivity imperative um, come out in kind of 2017, and it was kind of highly publicized around that, and there's been several form, formats since. Productivity hasn't really increased, generally speaking, um, across, across all industries, so the Irish sector, uh, the UK sector, America is all broadly similar. So it hasn't really fundamentally changed. It is getting a little bit better, but it hasn't fundamentally changed. So, so I, I strongly believe there's a lot, a long, a long way to go for the construction industry to improve productivity. And what does that, what does that really mean? Well, it basically means we'll have safer projects. Less people are going to get injured on our, on, the, on our job sites. There's going to be less quality issues. Therefore, people who are working on our projects are going to be less frustrated. They're going to be less irritated by having to do the same work twice because they're having better better quality. There's going to be less people get injured as a result of poor quality. Projects will be delivered faster so they can go and work on newer projects. And, and you know, going back to, to my mate Jay, who's worked on loads of different tunnels projects, the faster you do a project, the faster you can move on to the next one, the faster you can then build that kind of CV, that portfolio of amazing projects that you've done to transform infrastructure outcomes. You know, and then also as well, there's a big piece in in in, in this, and, and this is this will be huge in the states as well, is around having greener projects as well. So you know, the the whole net zero challenge, and the climate crisis, the construction industry is a huge contributor to um to carbon emissions, both from the embedded uh, carbon within construction, but then also the operational carbon used within construction projects. Ultimately, we'll have greener projects. We have better, more engaged people, not better people, more engaged people really built into the corporate, the corporate citizenship of, of, of building and building infrastructure. We have robust processes that are developed with our people. We'll then get the better performance across all those areas. So without saying everything, as I said earlier on, productivity isn't everything, but in the end, it is everything. So there's loads of areas that just these simple measures um, both at a tactical and at a strategic level, will actually deliver and 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 change the outcomes for infrastructure. And and for those general contractors and and trade contractors, I I view that. I mean, I I come from a sales side, right? So what the the term we use is there's a lot of money being left on the table too when when it comes to that to adopt these processes. This this kind of core change really means all of the things you describe directly correlate to return on investment and revenue and, and things of that nature yeah, yeah. where that's not necessarily where they can start a lot of the times the initiatives start from there but ultimately it's something that can be done and there's a lot of room for improvement like you said um so yeah I wanted to I wanted to thank you gentlemen for for jumping on Voices of Construction. I think the three of us could probably go on for about two and a half more hours, um, <laughs> but we we can't have that happen. Hopefully, um, I know that we'll we'll be together at Lean Construction Ireland, um, and and hopefully we can bring more and more content collectively to our our prospective clients, clients, and and the kind of industry as a whole. So I thank you again, Dan. Thank Guinness for sitting on in on another one of these. That is two and a half hours of your dog's <laughs> life I've taken. 
he's fast asleep, so I don't I don't know if that's a good thing or, or not. <laughs> we've, we've either soothed him to sleep or bored him to sleep. One of the two, I'm not sure. Right. And Tony, thank you again as well. 